God has never been all that pleased with an independent spirit. Now that may come as a surprise to those of us who are living and working in America where our independence and an independent spirit is something that we have taken very seriously and often we have been very proud of. We cherish it. We celebrate our independence. And in fact, people have been willing to die to preserve it. Now, I'm not talking about our nation's independence. I'm talking about that spirit of independence that tends to pervade in our culture. The, I will do it myself. The, I will do it my way spirit. It's a spirit that pervades our world and even the church. I have pulled myself up by my own bootstraps. I take care of myself and my own family. I believe I'm doing what is right and nobody is going to tell me what to do. I don't depend on anybody else, so... I don't expect you to depend on me either. I expect everyone else to do it the same way I do. I won't bother you with my problems. <laughs> Please don't bother me with yours. That spirit. And while people are raised to value an independent spirit, you won't find it in the scripture. And from what I read, God doesn't really like it. That independent spirit taken to an extreme raised up a Timothy McVeigh. He refused to place himself under any authority. And in doing what he pleased, he ended up doing the unthinkable. He took the lives of 168 people, including many children. He bombed the federal building in Oklahoma City some years ago. He was sentenced to death. He died defiant and proud without a single shred of remorse. When asked why, he said he was committed to controlling his own fate. And then he quoted a poem by William Ernest Henley entitled Invictus. It goes like this. Out of the night that covers me, Black as the pit from pole to pole. I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. It matters not how straight the gates, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Chilling but not surprising words in a culture where people want to control their own destiny, pursue their own agenda, and use whatever means might be necessary not only to get to where they want to go, but to maintain it. People today believe they're entired, entitled to it. You see, the primary problem with wanting to control our own destiny is that we ignore, perhaps we just simply choose to forget that each beat of our heart is a gift from God. 
And ultimately, the reality is you and I have literally no control, none, over those heartbeats. We belong to God, both body and soul. And whether we're willing to admit it or not, we cannot exist independently. We need God and we need each other desperately. We were created for dependency. We were created for community. We were designed to need our creator and to need one another. It is deeply embedded in our DNA. You see, scripture never says God helps those who help themselves, although numerous people have shared that with me over the last number of years. But it does say God helps those who can't help themselves. An important distinction. And while thankfully few people take it to the extreme that Timothy McVeigh did, many, most, pretty much all of us, like Saul and Peter, need a periodic lesson, a reminder that life needs its periodic doses of humility and dependence. And while our culture promotes independence now, and probably will forever, it ignores our need to develop a time-forged character. See, we want it. We want it when we want it. We want it mostly now, and most of all, we want it our way. I blame Burger King. And we demand others respond instantly to our needs as well. We are, a, we are an impatient people. God, on the other hand, thankfully, is in no hurry. God takes his time. In planning to use us, he prepares us often slowly. And that usually requires some suffering, some shaping, and some schooling. God prefers to work with us when we're humble, broken, bruised. When we know that we need his help and we're dependent, like Peter and Saul and Ananias, and Dorcas. So last week we talked together about the first mark of a believer. We said that that mark was grace. God's grace is offered. God's grace needs to be received. God's grace needs to be passed along. It's a mark of a believer. This morning I want to focus for a few moments on community, on being a group together, and on our spiritual growth and those two qualities and characters, how they mark a believer. In Acts 9, beginning at verse 19, picking up where we left off last week, this is what Luke has to say. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? 
Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was really a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told him how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the city throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It increased in numbers. As Peter traveled about the country, he went to visit the Lord's people who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, who was paralyzed and had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and roll up your mat. Immediately Aeneas got up. All those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. In Greek, her name is Dorcas. She was always doing good and helping the poor. About that time, she became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa. So when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, please come at once. Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him, crying and showing him their robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. Peter sent them all out of the room. Then he got down on his knees and prayed. Turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called for the believers, especially the widows, and presented her to them alive. This became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. Let's start with Paul, Saul. When his eyes sight was restored, after his baptism was performed, after his strength was regained, Paul begins preaching in the synagogues of Damascus. Note the plural, more than one underscoring the fact that there was a significant Jewish community in Damascus. And God goes to work to break Saul's stubborn will and to replace it with his. But unlike his conversion on the road to Damascus, this transformation will take quite some time. Sometimes it takes a lifetime. But at some point, the process has to begin. And so with Saul's conversion on the road to Damascus, 
The change is now initiated. Saul will learn to depend on God. That'll be growth. He'll learn to work with others, be part of a community, of a group. And through a series of circumstances, he will learn. He will, if you will, be forced to lean on, to depend more fully on God and on others. In Damascus, people were amazed at Saul's preaching. A recent rabbinical graduate and a messianic convert, we could say that Paul, well, now he knows enough to be dangerous. Here's a man who is gifted, a man who is talented, but here's also a man who is yet fully unprepared for the challenges that are ahead. Forming, transforming, being prepared for ministry and for service takes time. It takes training. It takes experiences of hardship and suffering. Paul had come to Damascus as a man who was prideful, as a man with pomp and passion and a plan. And on the way, he was blindsided and then blinded. So he fasted. He prayed. His sight returned to him by the Holy Spirit through Ananias, a man surely on his list to be arrested. And he was brought before those whose very lives he sought. He went then to Arabia. Saul says this as he writes in Galatians 1.17, and then eventually came back to Damascus for three more years. The 18th verse of the first chapter of Galatians. Peter will write, the God of all grace, the God who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will restore you and make you strong and firm and steadfast. 1 Peter 5.10. This is a fundamental biblical principle. It's a lifelong process. You see, God routinely brings suffering into the maturing of our lives. This passage that I just read from 1 Peter has been inserted into our public profession of faith form because it applies not to most people. It applies to all those who publicly profess their faith and follow Jesus. Membership in the body of Christ requires spiritual growth. It requires that we grow in maturity. You see, becoming a disciple means that we are part of a community that supports and encourages one another through those struggles, through that suffering, through that transformation. So it wasn't very long before the people began to realize what Saul was really saying. His words were a welcome balm and comfort to those who had been abused under the whip of legalism and the oppression of occupying forces. But some also noticed that Saul was putting a little bit of a twist on their traditional understanding and their theology. And so it wasn't very long before he was now perceived to be a threat to the Jewish leadership. And so they devised a plan to get rid of him. Today, we would call this the cancel culture. We ostracize and we strive to eliminate anyone and everyone who doesn't agree with us. That's what's happening the hunter, in this case, now becomes the hunted. The proud is humbled. Saul's former friends, now his enemies, 
post guards at every single gate around the city of Damascus. So his fellow Christ followers, and he's just new to this body of Christ, and notice that Luke includes no names. This is the community that he is talking about, the church. They come to the rescue for him. They come alongside. They come at night, as Luke writes, to lower him in a basket through an opening in the wall. Don't miss this. This man destined to be a proud leader in the Sanhedrin now places his life in the hands of the very group he was seeking to destroy. The pursuer is now running for his life, literally. Note the irony. Note how quickly things can change dramatically. So let me ask you a question, just to prompt some of your thinking. Have you ever had to depend on people like that? People who you previously didn't get along with, now you find yourself leaning on them? Do you remember those who walked with you during the hardest times of your life? The truth is, we never forget them. I remember those who came when our son Kevin died. I remember those who were there when we left Calvary after serving for almost 30 years. For those who showed up when our son was in a major accident, Truth is, it wasn't the people that I would have expected to be the first ones there. But people came, and they stayed, and they cared, and they walked with us. And I haven't forgotten. There is nothing like a basket rescue in a time of trouble to teach us a little humility, a little dependency, a little about community. You see, learning to trust others on the journey is just the first step. Then comes the hard part, the waiting. Slowing down and waiting for God's timing is the hardest part. R.C.H. Lenski writes, quote, Paul's career began like that of Moses, with a flight, and then with a long period of waiting, <laughs> waiting, Nothing but waiting. You see, Saul's story makes for great reading, probably even a great movie someday, but it makes for very hard living. Waiting is hard. Waiting is humbling. Have you ever had to wait and wait and wait for something? Marilyn and I had to wait to have children. The years and years of infertility were hard and humiliating. But the truth is, God seldom works fast. <laughs> Took him three days to raise his own son, his only son. So Damascus, then Arabia, then back to Damascus, and then Luke says, on to Jerusalem. Now in Jerusalem, Jerusalem is Saul's town. I mean, he owns this, if you will. He has been a rising star. He went to graduate school there. He knew the logistics, the movers and the shakers, the important people. Luke writes, but the disciples in Jerusalem, they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was really a disciple. Could be a wolf in sheep clothing. Could be an undercover spy. Could be one of those 
Trojan horse experiences. And then comes the rejection. Being shunned because of one's own past and the baggage one carries. The pain of rejection when longing for acceptance can be literally unbearable. The suffering that is deeper than physical pain. But here and elsewhere, God is at work. And he's using this to break Saul's independent spirit. The suffering becomes an essential part of this story. And ultimately, it becomes a testimony of God's grace. You see, God did it in Saul's life. God does it in ours as well. I can't tell you, and I'm sure there are many that have had more experience with this than I have, how many rejection slips I've received over the, over the years, how many applications that I sent in that were either denied or ignored, how many doors of opportunities that I've approached to find out they've been closed and even locked. Sometimes you have to knock on a lot of doors to find an open one. But God brings a relatively unknown, someone who we've only met once before in Acts 4, verse 36, to assist. But Barnabas, the scripture reads, <laughs> what a great opening line. Out of nowhere, here comes this son of encouragement. He steps up to advocate for Saul. Every time Barnabas appears, he is offering encouragement. Every time he is providing assistance. Every time he is walking the extra mile. I mean, what a great reputation to have. What a great name on your tombstone. But now Barnabas is literally risking that reputation to be exorbitantly gracious to one who had a dreaded reputation among believers. So Barnabas brings Saul to the disciples and he says, I've checked him out. He is the genuine article. He speaks for Jesus. He has seen the risen Christ. He is one of us. Every one of us needs a Barnabas from time to time. Can you name a Barnabas in your life? If you're a believer of Jesus, you have them. They're there. Few people have ever become and stayed followers of Jesus without one, usually more in their life. Likewise, you and I also all need to be a Barnabas in someone's life. Someone who is seeing, someone who is looking, someone who is finding the best in others, who is encouraging, who is offering second chances, who is providing large doses of encouragement and grace. Who have you been a Barnabas to in the last week? Last month? So Paul goes to the synagogues in Jerusalem, Luke says, he goes to share his testimony. He goes to prove that Jesus Christ is Messiah. This is an act of moral courage and human foolishness. I mean, these are the same synagogues that he grew up in. These are the synagogues that knew him since he was knee high. These are the synagogues that, that mentored him, that commissioned him to go and to persecute believers and to bring them back in chains. And he went day after day after day. Paul was neither afraid of the gospel nor intimidated to witness. 
As successful as Saul was in Jerusalem, God was just still beginning to prepare him for what was ahead. Saul confronted the Hellenists, had a discussion with them, and then realized they were out there plotting to kill him. And so the believers, again, a group of unknown who's, in Jerusalem took him to Caesarea, to a port city, put him on a ship and sent him off to Tarsus, back to his hometown. Even the city he once owned turned against him. And just like that, he's gone. And Saul temporarily disappears from the pages of the book of Acts. Scholars believe that Saul may have been in Tarsus as long as 10 years because God works slowly. He's a classic example of the slow, timeless work of God. Dallas Willard once told John Ortberg, hurry is the single greatest enemy of the spiritual life today. God is never in a hurry, but he's never late. Acts 9, 31. And the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. So Saul is gone. The world's soon-to-be greatest missionary effort ever. And Luke says, when he wasn't there, the church flourished. That's humbling. So much for being indispensable. Truth is, no one is. But Saul learns that he needs God more than God needs him. He learns that he needs others more than others need him. He learns humility. He learns dependence. He learns that is God's way. He learns that's the mark of a true believer. That's God's plan for the community that you and I call church. When Saul learned that, then God used him mightily to help turn this world right side up. And as this transformation and as his growth continues, you and I know that Saul changed his name. You see, his name came from his namesake in the tribe of Benjamin, from King Saul. He took the name of King Saul, somebody at the top, and he changed it to Paul or to Paulus, which means small and little, small and little. He bore the sign of his humility for the rest of his life. And then there's Peter. Luke now shifts our focus to the apostle Peter. You know Peter. He was the oldest. He was the first among the disciples. He was one of those three in the inner circle of Jesus along with James and John. You know Peter. Peter is a disciple who said, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. And then he was the disciple that betrayed his rabbi. Not once, not twice, but three times. 
Peter is also that same disciple, the one disciple that Jesus singled out after his resurrection and specifically asked him, do you love me? And Jesus didn't ask once. He didn't ask twice. He asked three times, do you love me? How humiliating to be asked that in front of his peers. And Peter went through humiliation the same protocol that Saul was undergoing in order to prepare Peter to be used by God in a mighty way. As Peter is making his way back from visiting the churches in Samaria, he passes through this little town called Lydda. Today, if you look it up in the map, it's known as Lod, L-O-D. Peter encounters a man there who had been paralyzed for eight years. Now, Paralysis is a very devastating condition. It obviously paralyzes the body, or at least a significant part of it, but it also begins slowly to paralyze the mind and then the spirit. And Peter heals him. Peter doesn't heal him by saying, I heal you. No, Peter says, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise up and make your bed. Stand up, be strong. Roll up your mat because you won't be needing it any longer. And Luke, Luke makes the source of Peter's healing very clear. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Well, Peter is at Lydda. An incident takes place in a nearby city of Joppa. There is a woman there named Tabitha, Dorcas, if you're using the Greek. And whatever word you use, it means gazelle. It is a very graceful animal. Because Tabitha is known for her grace. She is known for her love for others. And Luke notes that she is a disciple. She is a follower of Jesus. And the testimony is she falls sick and she dies. The disciples at Joppa send two men to Lydda to ask Peter to stop by their town on his way back to Jerusalem. They invite Peter to come and grieve with them. I mean, it's pretty hard for us to imagine that they would... Invite Peter, assuming that Peter would be able to raise this woman from the dead. But there is a need. Peter's invited. He goes. They show Peter the evidence of this woman's fruitful life, the coats and the tunics that she has made for others, and all of those who have come to mourn her passing. And Peter asks him to leave the room because that's what Jesus did. And Peter is doing what Jesus did. And then he kneels down and he prays. And then he invites her to rise. (laughs) And she does. Through Peter's humility, God works. Word spread. Many believed. God answers prayer. The power comes from Jesus. Many believed in Jesus. All too often we think about what we can do and what is beyond our ability. But the truth is, with man, most of it is impossible. But with God, there is nothing that is impossible. If we're willing to submit, be humble, depend on God, and let him use us. Peter and the first century church provide evidence of God's power, both the slow and the miraculous transforming work of God. As the church you and I in the 21st century need to do as well. Then we get to the who. 
Interestingly, in this passage that we read, the Christians are called saints. In chapter 9, verse 13, it's transcribed as holy people. In the 32nd verse, as the Lord's people. In verse 41, as believers. The word in all three cases is the same, hagios. And Luke uses the word here to designate disciples and followers of Jesus. Saul, then Paul, will address his readers in his letters and his epistles as saints. He uses the word hagios. The word is sometimes also translated as holy, but the root meaning is really different. To be different. It transcribes, it describes something that is different from the ordinary, different from what we might expect or anticipate, different from the business and politics and engagements of this world, set apart. The word is used to describe Israel as God's people, and now it's being used to describe the church as God's people. People are to be holy, separated, different distinguishable from the rest of the world because God has chosen them to be his people and to be about his work. We are saved to serve him. We are called to depend on him. We are called to serve together with others. And the source of our power to be holy and to be different is Jesus The secret to building a great church is to build it God's way. God breaks all of our man-made, prideful approaches. Do it my way. My way's the best. We need to do it right now. We need to do it as quickly as possible. Let's get on this. Let's get it done. Let's follow the successful. Let us uh, share these resources. Let us go with the movers and the shakers. Let's follow what the influencers are saying and what has been successful in some other places. Let's do it, and let's do it now. Let's do it quickly. That's not the Jesus way. First of all, it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about God. It's about Jesus. It's all about him. Not only does God's way work best, God himself works the best. So let me just set the record straight. We are neither masters of our fate nor captains of our soul. And the sooner we come to grips with that reality, the sooner we'll find ourselves open to a move of God's spirit in our own life the better we'll be with him and the better we'll be together. All believers, even Saul and even Peter, must learn that we need to grow and mature in humility, independence, and in serving God. So he'll use us and bring in his church and bring in his kingdom. And that process often hurts That process often takes time. And the truth is, we're an impatient people. But in his time, he makes everything beautiful. In his way, for his mission, he will make us dependent on him. So he can do beautiful things through us 
and use us to build his church together. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your mission. Thank you for sharing it with us. Thank you for making it possible that we could participate in it with you by your spirit, by humbling ourselves, by leaning on Jesus, and by being a vessel that you can use. Use us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.